you'll take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to First uh, Thessalonians chapter one. Hello, First Thessalonians chapter one. These things are always frightening to me. I have a true story about these microphones. I, uh, there's a fellow that used to be a PCA minister. He is now out of the ministry. And I think it's related to this. He had a habit of praying with his session appropriately and then heading to the pulpit. And as he would head to the pulpit, he would wave to the uh, sound guy who assured me that I was off while I was singing. And uh, the sound guy there assured him he was okay. And But one day he waved to the sound guy on the way to the pulpit. And on the way to the pulpit, it was one of those moments, you know, when nature calls, you just can't hang up. And... Uh, so he went to the restroom, but the sound guy didn't see him go to the restroom. And he, so you can imagine the congregation with reverence is out there preparing for, and they're hearing waterfall music, uh, elevator music. And so they were, but by the time he came out, they were literally falling out of the pews in laughter because after he had finished his business, he went to the laboratory and washed his hands and looked in the mirror and straightened his tie and said, Go get him, tiger. (laughs) So I'm grateful that Ligon has been able to continue his ministry since then. And uh, It's been a great joy to be with you. I'm very grateful to be with you. Before I read the text, I do want to say why I'm grateful to be with you. I don't think there is a more important group of people for me to talk with than you. Now, I'm not saying that the most important people in the world are gathered here, but I don't know of a more important group of people. I want the gospel to go around the world. But the American church today, with its evangelical church, with its commitment to missions, would probably best be described as a donut church. We send a lot out, but there's a big hole here. We are seeing the marginalization of Christianity and the ministry of the church, and we think it's a method issue, which I don't think it is a method issue. Um, And we're, we're very much concerned about it, and rightly so. You know, when I think back to the beginning of this country, which was an overflow of a Reformation movement that had been buttressed by the Great Awakening, I don't think the two people most responsible for the, for the nation you inherited with the impact of Christianity, even with all of its imperfections, which are many, would probably be George Whitfield and John Calvin. And, uh, but what's really interesting is when the news, and you see this constellation of people, this country had less than two million people in it in the late 18th century. And you see the constellation of leaders and thinkers that gathered in Philadelphia. But what you don't understand, and what we don't realize, is who was behind those thinkers. 
People in England realized it because when the news of this Declaration of Independence and it was read in the House of Parliament, a parliamentarian stood up in England and said, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. I mean, I'd settle for a Baptist parson now. You don't know the impact of a Jonathan Witherspoon on 13, at least 13 of the men he discipled and mentored in that Constitutional Congress. We don't realize the impact of a Gilbert Tennant, of a Samuel Davies, quoted last night, Rutherford. We don't realize the impact of a George Whitfield. And gentlemen, that has happened time and time again. We're in a great need, and the answer isn't going to come from Hollywood Boulevard. It isn't going to come from Wall Street, Main Street, Market Street, Schoolhouse Lane. The answer is going to come from Church Street. It's going to come from you. You are, in the providence of God, the appointment of God, the design of God, you and your ministry is the thermopylae of Christianity. That's why I want to take just a, the minutes that have been gathered, uh, granted to me and talk to you about the gospel message, the gospel ministry, and the gospel minister. What is the gospel message? What is the gospel ministry? And what is the gospel message? Obviously, I can't be exhaustive. And there are many that have preached and written wonderful treatises that I would love to give you bibliographies. Mine will be very rudimentary. It'll be a distillation of two chapters in the book of Thessalonians. But it's something I feel very deeply upon my heart. Some of you perhaps know that one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite books in the Bible is to preach through the book of Acts. I love to preach through it because of all of the implications of it. And uh, as you see the work of the gospel going city to city. One of my most favorite passages is in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, which relates to what I'm about to read. I love it in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when an adversary of the gospel says 13 words I would love to hear said one more time. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These people are talking about you. These people. Now, just stop and think about this. In Thessalonica, a city of almost 200,000 people, absolutely inundated with paganism, Egyptian paganism, Roman paganism, Greek paganism, absolutely inundated. The industries of sin undergirded everything. When the gospel came, in the space of a few short months... The adversaries of the gospel became so frustrated that they spoke up and said, these people have turned the world upside down. Now they've come here also. That's less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ all the way in Europe. And there were no civil rights protecting Christians and their ministry. There was no welcoming hand, no Tax breaks. Only Caesar is Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And that probably meant death. 
And they turned the world upside down. Those people that that frustrated adversary was referring to were the people whom you have taken their place in that ministry guild 2,000 years later. Now, what do we know about them? Well, the place that that was uttered was Thessalonia. And in the space of a few short months, the Apostle Paul, in the space of maybe a a year to uh, two years later, it's really hard to know because he's probably at Corinth when he got the when he got the questions that were sent from Thessalonia. But he was only there a couple of months. Of course, he left behind some good leaders because he knew that a church doesn't go beyond its leadership. He goes on to, uh, from Thessalonia and ends up, of course, in, uh, from Philippi to Thessalonia, on to Berea, on to Athens, on to Corinth. And while he's in Corinth with his 18-month ministry, he gets some word about what's going on at Thessalonia. How would you like... Is it possible to have only been in a, in, a, in a pagan setting for a couple of months and have such a ministry that when you write back, you could say your gospel life under persecution and affliction is opening doors for me to preach the gospel all around the world. I don't, they beg me to speak because they hear about what's happened in your life. Not just gospel reception where you were positionally right with God, but gospel transformation that you've turned from idols to serve the true and living God. You've said no to Egyptian paganism. No to Roman paganism. No to the self-sufficiency of all that had been put into the place of Thessalonia in the industries of sin whereby you made your money. You turned from that to serve the true and living God and it's opened up door after door and now they're killing you for it and it's opening up more doors for me to preach the gospel. What kind of ministry happened in those months and in the lives of those whom he left behind, those people? Well, he opens a window just a little bit for us in the book of Thessalonians. So look with me in 1 Thessalonians. I'll just skip down to this wonderful prayer. The Apostle Paul, by the way, let me give you a great tool that was given to me years ago. And that's A.W. Pink's um, Gleanings from the Prayers of the Apostle Paul. He identifies 17 prayers of the Apostle Paul, and he just gives you the gleanings from them. It's really a, an interesting study. This is one of those prayers that he studies, uh, that he presents to us. It's found beginning in verse 2. Now listen to this. And that from this, I want to set the, the three elements of the gospel message, gospel ministry, and gospel minister. I want to set that, and then I want to fill in the blanks from chapter 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you look at the prayers and the introductions of Paul's epistles, he always works in, almost always, I only know of two exceptions, he almost always works in that triad, faith, hope, and love. You see it right there? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's an amazing statement. How can, was Paul there in the councils of the Trinity when the decrees of election were given? On what basis would Paul know of their election? 
that God has chosen you. That he says, loved by God that he has chosen you. Why? Because the effects of divine election were being seen. What were those effects? Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, much affliction, we're not talking about you might lose your job. We're talking about they're getting killed. This is the first case of local state-sponsored persecution and, and killing of Christians and imprisoning of them. You receive the word with much affliction, with much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Result, you became, we were examples You imitated us to imitate Christ. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These guys were being put to death. But they received the word with joy. They grew in grace. In fact, that's why this letter is written. I know most of you know this, but this letter is written because Paul came and preached the gospel. They came to Christ, and he said, Now, Jesus is coming again, and He's coming soon. I don't know whether he sung maybe morning, maybe night, maybe soon, but he, he preached the imminent return of Christ. Well, these people came to Christ, and now they got killed, and Jesus hadn't come back yet. So they want to know, are they going to miss something? I mean, we're sitting here waiting for Jesus. They're dead. What did they miss? So Paul answers the question about believers who die before Christ returns in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But before he gets there, he speaks to them about what's happening by God's grace and for his glory in their lives. And in it, he pulls back the shade a little bit for us to see the instruments God used and the message God used. The gospel message. The gospel came to you. There was a gospel message. It came to you. There was a gospel ministry. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And you became imitators of us. And now the word is sounding forth from you and it opens doors for us to preach because of what you are doing and now other people are imitating you as you imitate Christ. So you not only had a gospel message and you had a gospel ministry, but you had gospel ministers. And that's what you and I have. A gospel message has been entrusted to us. And what would be a ministry consistent with that gospel message? And what do gospel ministers look like? Again, not exhaustive. I commend to you many who have written and preached far beyond what I can do. But I do want to ask you to just think of a couple of things with me from the text. The gospel message. Gentlemen, 
There is nothing I enjoy more than preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel in personal evangelism. Do you know why? Because I know I've got a message utterly unique from anything that anybody ever shares with anybody. When you leave here today, you're going to go minister to people. I don't care whether they're Christians or not. They're believers. Just go read Acts 17. Paul made it very clear. Everybody believes something. Everybody's a believer. The question isn't, are they believers? It's who or what? Let me tell you a second thing you can know. Can I speak Alabama Southern? They're believers, and if they aren't in Christ, it ain't working. They may have the thrill of a momentary experience in what they believe and what they do, whatever the idolatry is, the fictitious worship of life and the fictitious faith that they're committed to. There may be a thrill with it, but it doesn't last. It's a, uh, it's the difference between a, uh, a Harold Abrams where he opens the door into his faith commitment and he tells his coach, the gun sounds and I've got ten seconds to authenticate my very existence. And when he wins the gold medal for the hundred yard dash, which I don't think he would have won if Eric Little had decided to violate the Sabbath, but he didn't. He ends up that night under a bar, drunk. Is that all there is? While Eric Little takes all of life as worship. And he says to his sister, When I run, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It isn't working. And you've got something unique. With all due respect to RTS, Westminster, Covenant Seminary, let me give you the shortcut, save you a lot of money on apologetics. <laughs> every religion, every ism in this world that the people you go minister to have either believed in or have been liberated from if they've come to Christ, every religion, every ism that they believe in, tells them what they got to do or give to maybe get to some kind of heaven. And you've got an absolutely unique message. You tell them what you do and give is not the answer, it's the problem. And now you've got something glorious to tell them. It's not what you do and give, it's who God gave and what He did. You've got the message that a Nebuchadnezzar's confounded about when he sees the fourth man in the fire. And he's wondering. He, he's absolutely befuddled. And so when he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're delivered, his question is, what kind of a God delivers like this? What kind of a God saves like I've heard of gods that snuff out fiery furnaces and other people. I've never heard of one that goes into the furnace to deliver them. Never heard of that at all. Here is a glorious message. It's absolutely unique. And the gospel message is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. If you get that wrong, you may technically get other doctrines right, but you're going to get them functionally wrong. If you get the gospel wrong, everything else will be... You may technically get it right, but you will not functionally get it right. You want to teach leadership to your elders? 
Then they're supposed to do what with the flock? Shepherd them. How? Like the good shepherd who does what? Lays down his life. That's the gospel. You want to teach Christian husband? You want to teach him how to be a Christian husband? Husbands, love your wives as? And? That's the gospel. Do you want to teach women what it means to be biblically submissive? What does that mean? Then you have them and their submission and coming alongside of their husbands as to the Lord. And the reason they can love their husbands in a way that honors the Lord is because they know the love of the Lord for them. And He will never leave them nor forsake them. Doctrine, that's why Paul says, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. He is not saying, listen, everything, hear me, do not take me up on charges. Everything in the Bible is important. But everything in the Bible and its importance is downstream from getting the gospel right. And so you, that's why he says it's of first importance. He didn't say it's of exclusive importance. It's of first importance. And so you and I have to have a clear gospel message from every text, every sermon, every discipleship, every Sunday school class, every small group. It's the foundation, it's the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. That's why the greatest evangelists in your church are always new believers. They're still amazed at the gospel. Now, gentlemen, I know some of us, because of various reasons, we hear the phrase, preach the gospel to yourselves. I'm I'm, I'm tired of hearing that. No, you're not. You are not tired of hearing that. Every morning, I did it this morning, I do it every morning. Before I get to my quiet time, before I get out of bed, I thank God that He saved me. I was helpless and hopeless. I remind myself I'm a trophy of grace. I now know why I'm about to get out of bed. Why I'm going to go open that email and see the anonymous letters that are going to criticize me. Now I know why I'm going to do that. Now I know why I've got this discipleship opportunity. Our problem is not, if I may say it this way, our problem is not the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. Our problem is a truncated gospel that's being preached to yourself. Not only a free gospel that freely receives you, but a powerful gospel that transforms you. It's not just a gospel of justification, it's a gospel of transformation as well. And it's a gospel that empowers us to walk in a manner worthy, not of salvation, worthy of the Lord who saves us. It is that gospel that we preach. It is a majestic gospel. The very roots of the word that you trace back to Isaiah 40, it's a military term where a king, once he had descended from the, from the palace, gone to the valley, won the victory as a champion, would then send his emissaries, and they would get up on a high mountain, and they would announce, good news, the king has won. That's what we preach. A majestic Gospel of victory over all of the enemies of God and the enemies of your soul and over you who were an enemy and now He's made you a friend. More than that, He's put you in His family. That's the message that Paul came and preached at Thessalonia. It got him almost killed. But that didn't matter because he had already died. 
I hear a lot of say, would you help us get, be, I, I, I'm not the first person to say this, and I would give credit if I knew who, but consider credit given. Um, but I love it when the, I read the gospel. I hear messages, we, we've got countries with closed doors to the gospel. There are no countries with closed doors to the gospel if you're willing to die. There are no countries closed to the gospel. So Paul was willing to die, and so Paul had given his life for it, and he preached this unique, glorious message where God delivers us. God, this gospel message, God has delivered me from the persuasion of sin. God has delivered me from the power of sin. God has delivered me from the penalty of sin. God has delivered me from the position of sin. God is delivering me from the practice of sin. God will deliver me from the presence of sin. I had the privilege to be in Chattanooga at Covenant College, and afterwards I, I did a student pastor at a Reformed Baptist church, and there was a seminary uh, that I went part-time to that also had a Bible college, and the Bible college had a mandate to all of the Bible college. When they took evangelism, they had to go out and share the gospel with at least one stranger every day. And one day I was walking down Broad Street in Chattanooga, and I became the target. I saw the guy come up, and I knew he had to get his assignment done that day. And so he came up to me, and he said to me, he said, are you saved? And I said, Jack, uh, I, I just have this... Hopefully it's a sanctified, mischievous uh, streak in me. And I said to him, yes! And he kind of took him back and he said, when? And I said, oh, well, I have been saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. And I remember he's kind of looking at me and he said, uh, are you a preacher? <laughs> Well, that's the way the Bible speaks about it. We have been saved from the persuasion of sin. That's called effectual calling, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. We have been saved from the power of sin. That's called regeneration. He's given you not only new eyes and new ears, He's given you a new heart. Don't you love it? By the way, J. Vernon McGee used to say it. He said, I'm tired of hearing preachers tell you to give your heart to Jesus. What is your filthy old heart? <laughs> The gospel isn't you give your heart to Jesus. The gospel is Jesus gives you a new heart. And He not only gives you a new heart, He gives you a new record. He's delivered you from the penalty of sin. He's erased by His blood. He has erased your sin and He has written down His righteousness. So you're cleansed and clothed. And there's no condemnation and you're fully accepted in the Beloved One. It's not that I accepted Jesus. I received Him by faith and repentance. Now I am accepted in the Beloved One. That's the Gospel message. He has delivered me from the persuasion. Say, Can I stop right there just for a minute? Don't you love it when you're doing your preaching ministry and somebody joins the church and, and says, You know, Pastor, I... I've come to Christ and I grew up my whole life in a church and I never really heard the gospel. But under you, I've heard it. Don't you love that moment? Oh, God, give me sanctified humility right now. Can I tell you something? Some of your kids are saying the same thing to other preachers. And it's not that you're not preaching the gospel. It's they hadn't heard it yet. They haven't got eyes to see and ears to hear. And their only response, I've never heard this before. Yes, they did. You preached it and preached it and preached it. And by the way, what you preached was what God used to call them by the Holy Spirit. 
And then all of a sudden, one day the lights come on. And then that leads you to that union with Christ where regeneration has taken hold and he breaks the power of sin. I've still got sin living in me, but I don't have to live in sin. And then he makes you right justification. He delivers you from the penalty of sin. Then he delivers you from the position of sin, adoption. He is delivering you from the practice of sin, sanctification. He will deliver you from the presence of sin, glorification. That's this wonderful, majestic message that you and I get the opportunity every Lord's Day to get up on a mountain or at least a pulpit and proclaim it. That's what we get the opportunity to do. It is this glorious, majestic announcement that God saves the helpless and the hopeless. That if I can paraphrase Mr. Piper because he doesn't speak Southern. He hyphenates everything, but he doesn't speak Southern. God did much to save you, but he didn't do much to save you to make much of you. He did much to save you, to set you free from your sins, so now you can make much of Him. No longer falling short of the glory of God, now delighting in the glory of God. Instead of a life assassinating God's glory, now I have a life that assassinates sin in order to proclaim the glory of God. That's what God has done in this glorious gospel message. We weren't sin sick. We were sin dead. We weren't in the intensive care unit. We were in the morgue. And God set us free from the tomb of sin through the triumph of Christ. He didn't take bad people and make them better. He took dead people and brought us to life. That's the message. Nobody else has got that message. Isn't it wonderful to have a unique message? Nobody else has that message. The Buddhists don't have it. The Hindus don't have it. The secularist doesn't have it. So you've got this unique gospel message to unleash with this majestic, glorious announcement. Just one other thing, and this is where I get into trouble. When I share the I've got about five different ways I like to share the gospel. And one of the ways, if I can get somebody over than 45, and many of you aren't, so, this is terrible. I'm about to do something never do as a preacher. That is, give an illustration that you're going to have to illustrate. But when I was a kid, my mom used to take me to the grocery store. Now, I think you'll be able to identify with it. Though. My mom used to take me to the grocery store. And when I went to the grocery store, she took me for two reasons. One is so she wouldn't have to give the bag boy 25 cents to tip him. And the other, and I would go through there with her. I always got, got, a, got Cheez-Its and a, and a Coca-Cola for going through with her. And we would finish. And I'd carry the bags out. And then I'd carry them in when I get home. Now, my mom was a mom of absolute, or she was obsessive. I know she was obsessive. I mean, my mom used to put newspaper underneath the cuckoo clock just in case. That's, that's my mom. That, that's, and so she would not allow me to put the groceries up. She would not allow me to do that. What I did get the opportunity to do is she allowed me, because here's what happened. When you got to the counter at the A&P, anybody remember the A&P? Okay, they did this thing. You've got to go in a museum to see it today. It's called a cash register. 
And they would punch in the numbers and you'd get a total. Then this lady would turn around to a small green cash register and she had punched that number in and like magic out of the back of that small green cash register would come rolls and rolls and rolls of okay some of you got it and for those of you that don't know let me tell you what here was the deal buy groceries from us we'll give you green stamps take the stamps put them in a book Bring the book to the green stamp store, and when you get them there, 7,000 books, you get a can opener. That's, that was the deal. And everybody lived for that. And so my mom, was she, so I would go home, and she, I had to lick all the stamps. That was my second job, lick all the stamps. And later, I remember my wife used to do this when we first got married, and she would take the stamps and roll them over a bowl with water that had a sponge. And I'm saying, why did my mom do that? Why did she... I have no idea how many diseases are in my body now from eating glue for three years. So, so we put them in. Then we would take those 7,000 books. We'd put them in our car. We would go to 428 Pecan Avenue in Charlotte, North Carolina to the S&H Green Stamp Redemption Center. There are three R's to the gospel. Ransom, redeemed, reconciled. So we would take those green stamps, put them on the counter, and then they would go to the shelf and pull off the can opener and give it to us, and we'd take it home. Jesus went to the cross, paid the ransom for your sin to the Father. And no passion play, no movie can ever preach the gospel. Because they can't show who killed Jesus. The Father. And they can't show the agony and the, of our ransom. Which was not the physical death of Jesus. That's what the Roman church gets absorbed with. There have been a lot of Christians, I say this reverently, who died worse physical deaths than Jesus. What they didn't do is have all of hell poured out upon their soul. They didn't drink the unspeakable cup of wrath to give you the unfathomable cup of life. They didn't do that. That's why, with all due respect, we don't preach about God's unconditional love. God's love is not unconditional. If it was, or it could be, There would be no cross. Jesus even asked the question, didn't he? Father, is there any other way? Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will. And he went there and the father tipped the cup to the last drop was drank. It is finished. God's love is unmerited. God's love is undeserved. God's love is unstoppable. God's love is unfathomable, but God's love is not unconditional. Jesus paid the price for God to be just and justifier of sinners. That's the message we preach. And very quickly, I've only got a few minutes left. What about the gospel ministry? Would you just look at a couple of verses with me? And I'll just enumerate them for you. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. 
For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For... Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. In other words, the gospel message determines our gospel ministry. So we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who test our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Let me just give you three thoughts about the gospel ministry. The gospel gospel message, unique, foundational, motivates, Forms the Christian life. It is absolutely penetrates and wraps up everything. Christ, the center, the sum, the substance and the circumference of the gospel message to the helpless and the hopeless. So that no longer do they assassinate God's glory, but they assassinate sin as this God who has gloriously saved them by the gospel of grace. What kind of ministry matches that? Well, here's just three thoughts he gives to you. Again, this isn't exhaustive. And I know all of you here, I've I've read our commitment. We're means of grace focused. But let's put just a few, just a little bit of flesh on that. Number one is this. Gospel preaching ministry is thoughtful but bold. We preach with boldness. It's thoughtful but it's bold. It's thoughtful. Who am I speaking to? Where are they? I need to know. He says, I love you. And I want to know how to speak to you. It is thoughtful. But it is bold. In other words, you didn't have to make an appointment with Paul to find out about the sanctity of life. Or the sanctity of marriage. He boldly, proportionately, rightly, would preach The whole counsel of God, which is why he was innocent of the blood of all men. Boldness. All right, gentlemen, I've only got a few minutes left. And so if I get fired, I get fired. 
I look at some of my great heroes of preaching in my tradition. And I see them having gotten contextualized in the southern culture. And they didn't free, freely speak to the sins of it. I mean the greatest preachers alive in the 19th century. And I understand their revulsion against the wrong theology of many who dealt with the issue of slavery. I understand their revulsion. Well, I don't understand. Except that the same problem is with me. Many times we get overly contextualized and trying to contextualize so we don't see what needs to be dealt with and man-stealing cannot be supported in Scripture. Can't be supported. And we needed people to lead us out and maybe 600,000 lives would not have been lost. Or the confessional German church I quote, we heard them coming by, Jews, in the railroad cars, screaming for help on Sunday. So we turned the organ up. Now, gentlemen, you can have all your discussions you want to. I'll be more than happy to talk to you about two kingdom and everything. But our ministry is not one that shrinks away from declaring the whole gospel of God, the whole counsel of God, with the spear point of the gospel of saving grace in Jesus Christ. We are instruments of common grace as well as redemptive grace. And we, and no one should have to question. Our commitment to gospel preaching does not mean we're silent about the other doctrines of Scripture. Our people need to know how to deal with an issue where you have a culture that at one time was liberated from the paganism of sexual anarchy and now is at a dizzy speed, is a dizzy rate, plunging itself into sexual anarchy. And we are not being wonderfully thoughtful gospel preachers because we don't say anything about that. Unless you come make an appointment with me and I'll be glad to tell you what I think about a marriage. No, right? Every, every time I do a marriage, I always start off with one statement. And I'm convinced in five years, unless something happens with a great awakening, I'm convinced in five years I'll be put in jail for this. Here's the way I start. Marriage is not a social invention. It is a divine ordinance. And it is to be one man, one woman, for one life. Anything else will bring utter despair and destruction to people and cultures. Anything else. Now, what gospel gives a heart for that in a culture? I believe it's absolutely crucial that we are thoughtful, but yet bold. We understand proportionality. We understand what needs to be handled. And we understand first things first. We understand all of that. But thoughtfulness is not cowardice. That we want to keep our jobs. That intrinsic sin that needs to be rooted out in your local church. And God's people must be called to repentance. Not with a harshness upon people. But with a hatred of sin. 
What would happen in our gospel ministries if our gospel ministers in their ministry set a tenor so that every church was a safe haven for sinners to be saved and grow in grace, but a death trap for sin? What would happen in churches like that? The second thing I would just mention to you, the Apostle Paul says, is not only was he thoughtful yet bold, gospel preaching is insightful but fearless. It is fearless. There's only one fear that you and I are allowed in the Bible, and that's, the, that's that beneficent fear of the Lord that brings wisdom and reverence in life and worship in all aspects of life. So we're, in our ministry, we are to be not only thoughtful and bold, we're to be insightful and fearless. And that all our fears are to be dismissed. And what's the antidote of fear? It's very clear. Perfect love casts out. Not courage. It's not courage is the antidote. Perfect love casts out all fear. The love of Christ that lays hold of us. Fearless. But gentlemen, let me just share with you. If you and I are preaching For the applause of men, then we will quit preaching when we get the frowns of men. You don't go into ministry to be fulfilled. If you are, you're not going to last long. You go into ministry to fulfill the ministry. And to be poured out as a drink offering. To be emptied out. To fulfill the ministry. I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God, the judgment and the soon appearing. Here's what Spurgeon said. Every time you and I do gospel ministry of the gospel message and the preaching of it, he says you ought to feel the eyelash of God upon you. You ought to hear the footsteps of Christ coming. This may be your last sermon. And you must hear the gavel of the judgment seat. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. And in your ministry, you're giving the one message that can deliver men and women on that day. The one message that can deliver them. Let me give you a third thought from the text. Gospel preaching is not only thoughtful but bold. Not only insightful, yet fearless. And by the way, just one other thing there. Men, listen. Don't let, listen to critics. You can learn. But don't let the critics set the agenda of your life. It's the Lord that sets the agenda. I'm not saying turn a deaf ear to criticism. But what I am saying is this. Don't let the critics set the agenda of your life. And if I may quote um, St. Stonewall Thomas Jackson. (laughs) Never take counsel from your fears. Recently, I've been engaged in this public deal on the Boy Scouts of America and all that they're going through. And I got a call from the executive council. And he was explaining to me, Harry, we want to do what you're saying and the way that you're talking about it. But if we do, here's the lawsuits that are going to come and we're going to do. I said, wait just a minute. Hold it. You need to do what's right in the right way for the right reasons. Don't make your strategy out of fear. Never strategize your life and ministry and preaching from fear. 
That doesn't mean you don't. Paul said, the same Paul that says, don't be anxious, said, I have concerns for the churches. So there's a place for sanctified concerns. But not con- what you fear will control you. And what you fear that dictates your plans, then what you fear will eventually come upon you. So that by God's grace, you are fearless, yet insightful. And number three, gospel preaching is audience-sensitive, but God-centered and controlled. It is audience-sensitive, but God said, he said, I didn't come to flatter you. I came to be approved by God to deliver to you. And there's nothing that pleases God more. Nothing that gives him a greater smile, if I may say it reverently, than when you handle his word faithful, his people lovingly and truthfully. Lovingly, fully. Here's what Ryle said. Love without truth is barbarity. Truth without love is cruelty. That both of those are engaged in your ministry. And then my last thought, my last, what about the gospel minister? Well, very clearly, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be upon you. Now I'm going to really get controversial, and I've been criticized for this, but that's okay. I'm old enough, it doesn't matter anymore. So here, here's what, I believe there's a reason that men are called to the gospel ministry. I believe there's a reason. I believe men are called to the gospel ministry. Not all men, qualified, called men. The gospel minister must be a man of God. You must, be, you must know what it means to act like a man. The way it downloaded in our culture is this phrase, gentle men. Men who know how to treat people rightly, with dignity and sensitivity. Men who know how to embrace their responsibilities, even if it costs them their life. Strong and courageous, sensitive and compassionate. That both of those are woven two threads into one tapestry. Now, that's a man of God. Recently, I was talking with some brothers, and I'm trying not to be unfeeling. But they, you know, they were saying to me, you know, there's people that criticize us in the PCA. And hopefully you're not one of those that inappropriately criticizes or you don't think through the ethics of criticism. But, but I just said to them, guys, look, so six people are writing on blogs about you. First of all, why don't you just take a listen? Maybe they got something inside. Secondly, that can't set the agenda of your life. Let me just welcome you to my ministry. Every Sunday after I preached a sermon, would you like to know how many people would love to have access to a blog and what they're saying about me? Not six. Listen, every time you preach, you've got more than six people that are put out with you. And they probably thought you didn't illustrate it rightly. You didn't do this right. You missed this. You did that. You did, and I wonder what you're really thinking. That, that just, that, listen, God made you a man. So, and I know everybody, this is a criticism I get, so let me go ahead and say it. I do believe it, there's a place, act like a man. Put your big boy pants on and zip them up with the gospel of grace. And your life is not dictated by what they say. So be a man of God. That doesn't mean you're insensitive. On the contrary. That doesn't mean that you're, that doesn't mean that you are, 
uh, that you don't care about where people are. On the contrary. But you're not taking your cue of who you are from them, but from who God has made you to be, saved you to be, and called you to be. And so, went into this arena with full criticism, threats upon his life. And he says three things about, his, about the gospel minister. Here's the first one. The gospel minister is a man of God who fully rests in Christ, yet works hard. He fully rests in Christ while he works hard. Okay, pastor. Work or rest? Answer? Yes. The rest in Christ may have moments of passivity, but it's not passivity. It's not just let go and let God. That's not our... our, By the way, God's power is not contingent upon your efforts. So Paul says he rests, but he says, I worked harder than all of you. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Leadership is hard work. Preaching is hard work. You can't get your meaning from it. You rest in Christ fully, completely. You wait on the Lord while you pray, study, lay hold of, fellowship. All of those things through which God ministers to those who rest in Him. So that you engage in the work of the ministry. That's why you and I get to be supported by the very thing that got Achan killed. The tithe. He took God's tithe and he got killed. That tithe is used to support me and you. So that we would work hard at the ministry while we rest fully in the sovereign, sufficient, singular grace of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the gospel minister is... The gospel minister is a man who is paternal. He says, I'm a nursing mother and I'm a faithful father. I'm a nursing mother and I'm a faithful father. I'm, I'm over. I'm sorry, but uh, I drove a long way. So here, I'm, I'll finish very quickly here. Nursing mother, you're nurturing them. Faithful father. Can I give you an illustration of this? When I played baseball, I had a... In fact, I saw a basketball game this last week where a guy, his leg, lower leg became an L. That happened to me in my left arm. And I remember I had to walk two miles home uh, to get home. I'll never forget seeing my mother. My mother saw me. First thing she did, she lied. She said, son, I think it's just a sprain. <laughs> and she's just trying to calm me down. Then we get in the car. We go to the doctor. And the doctor then says... Um, the doctor then says, uh, he says, uh, well, this is a bad break. I need to keep him over because I need to put him to sleep to set it. Well, we didn't have insurance. And my dad was in minor league baseball. And there's a lot of month at the end of the money. And so dad says, uh, how much is that going to cost? <laughs> and uh, he told him and he said, uh, he said, uh, is there another way? He said, well, I can give it a local and we can try. And uh, Dad says, then can we leave? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, let's try that. I'll, I'll never forget that moment my whole life. I'll never get. Doctor got up on the bed, took my leg and, th- I mean, my arm and three times jerked it till he got it right after some shot that didn't do anything. <laughs> Here's what I remember. I remember my dad looking at me. 
And he said to me, he said, son, you can do this. And I saw my mother right beside me. She had one role. My daddy had another one. So when I went through the last two months, the tests for prostate cancer and the things that I didn't want to go through, 50 years later, I can still hear my daddy say, son, you can do this. We need fathers in the church. The pressure is for you to be a grandfather. I know what grandfathers do. I'm one. Bring the kids. We're going to have fun. Then I'm going to give them back to you. That's not what God, our father. Discipline. Challenge. Awareness. You need to be a nursing, nurturing mother. And a faithful, coaching, challenging, encouraging, exhorting. Those are the words I'm just using out of the text. Father. Number three, finally, is this. The gospel minister is an intentional example. He said, we did this. I lived this way for you. Now, guys, you know, obviously, what the trap is. Living a false, hypocritical, pharisaical life in front of people. Well, the answer isn't to live... And a sincerely sinful life in front of people. The answer is by God's grace, get on the journey of grace and let people see, not only can I be forgiven, but there are victories on this side of eternity over sin. And I even see it in my pastor who is on this journey of grace. We prove to be examples because people not only learn from instruction, they learn by imitation. In fact, they probably learn more by imitation as your instruction sets up for them what to imitate. So that we are examples of people who confess sins, who get victories, who, and people can see it. I remember one time I was over preaching for my brother Sandy Wilson, and I was standing over there in the corner. And um, uh, as I was standing there, I loved the split chancel because I could st- be hide behind the high pulpit and just worship the Lord and have a glorious time. And, and I, I, I just absolutely loved it. And uh, he said to me, come out here. I said, well, he, he, stand between while we lead the worship. I said, I just want to stay over here. He said, no, I'm paying you to come out here. <laughs> he said, I don't want you to worship to be seen, but my people need to see you worship. Now, guys, I don't know how to tell you to pull that off, except that's just constant introspection by the Holy Spirit. Your people need to see you. They need to see you dealing with sin. They need to see victories over sin, but you can't live to be seen. But you know they got to see you. The sheep, the shepherd leads from the front. So they follow you. They hear your voice and they see where you're going. Intentionally examples as you live under the eye of God alone. So, my dear brothers, you got a gospel message, a gospel ministry, and your gospel ministers, men of God. Go get up on a high mountain. Get up on Mount Sinai that tells people they're helpless and hopeless. Then take them quickly to Mount Calvary. Your help has come from the Lord. 
announce this victory. He has won the victory. Your king has come. He has won the victory over sin, death, hell, the grave, and Satan. He hasn't destroyed them, but he has defeated them. One day he'll come back and destroy them. He didn't come and bring judgment. He came to bear your judgment. He stood between heaven and earth. And there strung between heaven and earth, this Savior, who could have called legions of angels, said, Stay! I've got a victory to win. And he won the victory. Get up on a mountain. You're not... Appeal. This, the gospel is not a whining appeal of a disaffected God who says, give me a chance. It is an announcement. God has won the victory in His Son. He has ascended and He leads captive a host of captives. He has won a victory. Be an example of that victory. Minister that victory with the full confidence of the gospel so that people see it and say, if that's what God does in somebody like my pastor, I want that also. Then Christ alone is exalted. Christ alone is high and lifted up. Men, there's nobody else I want to speak to than you. There's nobody else that needs to hear what I've said more than me. But I long to see what God would do with you. Go get up on the mountain. Climb up on the wall. And announce good news. A king has won the victory who is now the tender shepherd of your soul. Don't you love that moment when John looks? Everybody, where is the scroll? Who can open it? Good news! And I looked and I saw the lion of Judah standing as a slain lamb. That's what we ask God to make us as men of God. Lion-hearted and lamb-like. Preaching the gospel. Father, thank you for the wonderful moments to be together. Thank you for these men, where they're going, what they're going to do. Their ministries, so many different places. And you have them right where the need is. It's all around us in this world. May we announce the majestic gospel of saving grace of King Jesus, who saves us who are helpless and hopeless, and makes us, makes us to walk in the triumph of Christ. May we preach that good news to people. And Father, may we minister in a way, from the pulpit and in life, that reflects a gospel that saves sinners by grace, makes them right with God, and sets them on a journey to meet their God by grace, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. And Father, may not only our ministry reflect our message, but may these men be seen as gospel trophies who have become gospel rivers. And from their innermost being, may the river of life flow. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.